Hello and welcome back to a new episode of Lost to Time. Lost to Time is a podcast where we explore the work of underrepresented artists, musicians, instrumentalists, whatever you want to call them. We're here to put a spotlight on work that is not given a fair shot and that is potentially lost to time. Tonight you're joined by myself, Joshua Mallard, and co-host Han Hitchin. Hey Han. Howdy everyone. Now we've been doing the interviews for a while now. We did um, one with Miho Sasaki and Andrew Sigler. So if you haven't checked those out, definitely give those a listen. But today we're actually going to be diving right back into our core content. Mm -hmm. And we'll reveal who the composer is after we tell you a little bit of the upcoming camp activities. And really, there's one that should be on your mind right now. Even though I'm sure y'all can see who the composer is if you're here because it's in the title. But we want to take a moment to talk about Campground 22 because that is happening this week. Yes, and both of us will be there. Yes, it's going to be a real fun time. We do not want to miss it. Yeah, hopefully if you listen to the podcast, um, we'll see you around and you'll get our face review. <laughs> oh, yes. But um, Campground is packed. Um, the, the main thing you really want to know are the three concerts that you should definitely check out. The whole festival is from the 24th to the 26th of March. Um, the first concert is at the Morian Center for Clay in St. Petersburg, Florida. That's on March 24th at 7.30 p.m. Yep, and the second one is the next day, Friday, March 25th, also 7.30 p.m., but this one is at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Tampa, Florida. And the third concert is the next day, Saturday, March 26th, and this one's actually at 2 p.m., not 7.30, and this one's at the Florida Museum of Photographic Arts, also in Tampa, Florida. If you would like to buy tickets, all you have to do is go to Camp's website, contemporaryartmusicproject.org, and there will be a button right there for you to go and buy tickets. Um, they're $15 for general admission and $10 for student or seniors. Pretty good deal. Yeah. While we're talking about the concerts, one thing you might want to know is there's some really cool additions to some collaborations going on. Um, for example, the concert on the 26th has a performance with the Tampa City Ballet. That's really cool. Um, and then the concert on the 25th has a performance with Central Florida Choreographers Collaboration. So, you know, you don't see that every day <laughs> at, at any music festival. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen any live dancers. So this is going to be a really, really exciting event. And I'm really looking forward to next weekend. And y'all should look forward to it, too. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, we'll see you around. That being said, let's just jump right into this. We're talking about Jermaine Taifair today. French composer and a woman composer. Um, this is another composer who's kind of flown under the, under the radar, but had these moments of really great success, really great accomplishments, big name associations, things like that. So this is actually someone that I think a lot of you will be interested in. Um, on the flip side, also very accessible music for the most part too. So, you know, we've talked about, you know, people super experimental. We've talked about people who do like spiritual music mostly. And this is someone who is doing chamber music, but in more of like a neoclassical style. Some people might say an impressionist style, but that's to say that I think there's something here for everyone as we discuss Jermaine Taifair. Yeah, absolutely. Her music is very accessible, not just from a performance standpoint, because there are quite a few really excellent performances of her pieces that out there that you can search. But also from a listener standpoint, I feel like, you know, I'm not usually one who loves neoclassical music, but I really am enjoying Tayfair's music. She has some really awesome works and we're really excited to share them with y'all today. Yeah, and we'll discuss this a bit more later, but even I, I would hesitate to paint it all with the brush of neoclassicalism. You're right. Um, there's a good variety in here. So let's not spoil that. Let's talk a little bit about Jermaine Taifair's life, and then we'll get into the music. How about you kick this off on? Absolutely. So she was born into a middle-class family in the late 1800s, and she studied piano with her mother at home and started composing some short pieces on her own. Her mother was quite supportive of her and her musical career from very early on, so this is how she was able to get a good start into composing and being a pianist. Yeah, I mean, that's where it starts, right? Yeah. We've just... seen that. We're now on 
our sixth composer, and a lot of them start with some family support. Yes. So <laughs> I guess people listening, you know, music lovers create more musicians, you know, that stuff spreads around. Yes. Support your kids, support your young peers. Um, and she was also said to be just as talented in regards to visual art as she was music. So not only in her early life was she a pianist, a composer, she was also a artist, which is really awesome. Now, despite having the support from her mother, her father was actually opposed to her um, having a career in the arts. And especially when she was beginning to be more serious about music, um, she started studying at the Paris Conservatory in 1904, and her father was actually very, very against this. Yeah, there's some context behind this that you can find in her memoirs, uh, which we'll be talking a bit about later. But yeah, her father was not cool, was very um, upset about her even auditioning yeah. at the conservatory. So not even like just being interested in music is, is already enough to, <laughs> I guess, set him off. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of a trend that you see with a lot of like women composers of, you know, men being the barrier to a lot of things, education, success, stuff like that. So um, this is actually something that will unfortunately be like a trend, um, not just in in Ty Fair's life, but through some of the other women composers that we discuss. Yeah, and it's a real shame, but thankfully she didn't let her father's opposition stop her. In fact, she still went on to study at the conservatory where she met so many important people who would be very big names in her career. Yeah, I mean, she went on to to go on a bit of a run. So that being said, in her memoirs, she says that the conservatoire represented for my father a place of perdition. Uh, he cried, for my daughter to be at the conservatoire or to be a streetwalker is the same thing. I will never give my permission. So very harsh words. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's messed up. Just that's the only way to say it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he did not want his, he want Ty Fair to, to go study. Um, so there's a bit of a family dynamic there. Um, that being said, she did begin studying at the conservatoire in 1904. Yeah, and it was really good that she was able to get there. She studied there with Santre Meyer until 1906. And again, despite her father's support, she ended up winning an award, a premier medal in sight reading and a premier prix in solfege. Yes, and you could tell already this is um, testing our French pronunciations. Um, I took Spanish in high school. I'm sorry, everyone. I took French in high school, but, you know, I'm a little rusty. I think that name might be like, <laughs> I'm not even going to, to butcher it, but you can actually definitely access this information. Thankfully, a lot of her biography is well documented, but the caveat is some of these um, texts related to her life are a little bit hard to access. Yeah, and I imagine quite a bit of it was originally in French and then translated into yeah. English or other languages as well. Now, all that said, um, her early success at the conservatory kind of like told her father like, hey, <laughs> something's going on here. Back off. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing good. You don't need to oppose me. And hope. And yeah, he kind of got the message like, okay, my daughter's doing good. I probably shouldn't keep resisting this. Well... What what he did was he stopped resisting, but, you know, who's to say what that really meant, like, as far as their personal correspondence. But mm -hmm. at the very least, um, she was able to keep studying, though she had no financial support from her father on doing this. Mm -hmm. So that's at the age of 14, um, yeah. saying, I'm not going to support you going to the conservatory. So at this point, a 14-year-old Ty Fair had to tutor younger students. I mean... How much younger can they get, right? Yeah. Now, at the conservatory, a lot of good things happened, though. So this was like a nexus for all the bright minds that would, you know, go on to be big names, at least some of them. This was where Ty Fair was in the mix with these people. In fact, some of her classmates went on to become Lasix. Including Ty Fair herself. Yeah. So this includes um, Ulrich, Honiger, Mihod. Um, and there's also a lot of people that 
um, Ty Fair went on to meet in the area or at the conservatory itself. And it was also around this time that basically Ty Fair started composing, like seriously, some of her earliest piano works were composed while she was still here. So Impromptu, 1909, and um, Romance, 1913. Uh, this is where things really pick up in 19, between this time and 1920. Yeah, and in 1920, she ended up getting quite active and more serious as a composer, and she was making a lot of connections with some well-established names or some big future names in the composition world. Um, as we mentioned, at the Paris Conservatory, she met some members of Les Six, and additionally, she ended up meeting Louis Dury and Francis Pol Polant? Polonc. Polonc. I'm sorry. My <laughs> tongue got tied there. And... She and the these other five French composers ended up establishing Les Six, which is, as we mentioned, this group of six French composers of the early 20th century. Yeah, so she's getting out there, meeting people, making things happen. And it's at this point where we have a little bit of a turning point. Um, at this point in time, Eric Satie actually hears one of her works, and that work would be Jeux de plein air. Um, and at this point he invites her to make a piece for his furniture music concert series, which some of you might have heard of. To an extent, this is like, uh, I'd guess, like the salon music scene or yeah. um, music that can be sort of like furniture that you sit on, you know, like yeah. something ambient music kind of thing. But anyways, this was a turning point for her output, and the concert series was really cool too. Um, this performance would be later a quartet for strings, katora chords, by her, and it was performed by an all-woman string quartet, so already a really cool thing. Mm -hmm. And this was also in a little hub of artistic activity, not just music, so it was performed at the Rue Haugens, and this was apparently where painters like Picasso um, would go. And so this was like the place to get a premiere going. Yes, and that must have been really exciting for her, both as a composer and also with her earlier experience with art. Yeah, I mean, this is what you want to see coming out of conservatory, being a young composer to essentially get like a cosign and kind of get involved with this artistic network. Um, this is something we see of 20th century composers who often get really successful, like how Stravinsky kind of integrated with the upper society of Paris. And it must have been especially exciting for Taifair, both given she's a composer, but also that she has experience with art from earlier in her life. Yeah, so, yeah, it, a little interdisciplinary, you know, really interact with a lot of people. Yeah. Um, now, the 1920s didn't stop there. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, Lasix certainly went off, and they were all members of Lasix were very active during this time. Um, Typher's most popular and well-known works actually come from the 20s, um, including her first piano concerto, her harp concertino. She wrote three ballets, and she started writing a lot of film scores, which, by the way, Typher has a huge output of film music, especially documentaries, that I highly recommend all y'all check out. We don't talk about any of them today, but there's a huge list that you can find on Wikipedia and a few other sources that y'all should totally look at. It's really impressive. Agreed there. And maybe we'll work some discussion about film music into her classical works. In particular, I guess, how the sound of her music might be influencing film music today. Um, now, that being said, just as Han said, 1920s was active. There is the first piano concerto, harp concertino, three ballets, and a lot of film scores. Another thing was she sort of got patronage from um, the Princess Edmond de Polignac. Um, so this was like a, a patron of the arts, um, heir to a lot of like money and stuff, um, who was sponsoring a lot of stuff like the funding of a music salon, um, mm -hmm. getting the works of like, you know, Ravel and Debussy more out there, stuff like that. So someone kind of embedded in the, um, the upper society of France. Someone with a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a, a tale as, end of, as old as time to an extent, you know, as far back as like Beethoven and Monteverdi and stuff that um, some people can really help support the arts with money. <laughs> yep, that's how it is. 
So this patron liked um, her ballet, Le Marchand d'Oiseau, and that's 1923, enough to commission a piano concerto, which was composed 1923 to 24. So this was pretty successful and sort of like pushed um, some of Typhair's sound. Um, at this time, that was kind of like a neoclassical sort of sound, um, maybe a bit different than you would expect from her later works, which I guess people say are more like impressionistic, um, stuff like that. But this was kind of fitting into the salon music scene, but also the trend of like neoclassicalism that would kind of come up during the mid 20th century, early to mid 20th century from like you know, Stravinsky's middle period and stuff. Yeah, certainly. And she was definitely a huge contributor of this style. Yeah, so here's when we get into the 1930s. This is kind of where things take a turn in a, a sort of odd direction. So it was still mm -hmm. an active part of her career. No one can say she wasn't successful, but she would kind of never reach the popularity that she did in the 20s when Lasix was really popping, basically. Yeah. And when she was really, like, getting out there and meeting a lot of people, getting a lot of pieces written. Um, to an extent, the slump in her career during this part was because of personal issues, like, between unhappy marriages with, with two husbands. Yeah, so she was going through a lot of personal troubles during this time. And like anyone, I mean, we're all human. When we go through hard times, um, a lot of our interests, a lot of the energy that we would have to create whatever it is we create, that energy just drains away. And this led to a continuance of financial problems that caused her to, whenever she would compose, it would have to be on commission. And this caused a lot of her works to be written really quickly, really hastily. They weren't, she didn't have as much time to actually, you know, refine what she was doing, take the time with the piece. And it seemed like, you know, she may not have been so happy with composition as an outlet as much as she was in the 20s. Now, that being said, you can also see this as composition being her outlet for her struggles, her personal struggles. So, yeah. you know, letting all that out through her music. Um, from what we could find, there's like a, a implication like that, you know, it's really hard for her to kind of just like her father get financial support um, during this time uh, for her work. And because it was an outlet as well, to an extent, she was like very, she was talented at other things. So, mm -hmm. you know, she was doing other things and music was another outlet for that. But yeah, these were kind of a bit of turbulent times and, um, for the kind of more like uh, social perspective, you could consider it as like, you know, men being barriers to her music again. Yeah. Um, or at least personal struggle being a barrier to her music. So like external pressures slowing yeah. her output. And perhaps not having as much of a support system as her peers or as composers today might have. Yeah. Though that being said, that's not to say she was unsuccessful, especially oh, it, depending how you view success, stuff like that. Um, so she, she wrote concertos in the 1930s that were fairly successful, um, like um, Cantate de Narcisse. <laughs> I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, um, but that was in 1938. Um, and she was going crazy on film music still. Yeah, she's certainly, this is probably her most active period for her film music. And she, I believe she wrote almost four, she scored for almost 40 films in her life. And that is just a lot. I mean, even if you look at some of the big film composers today, I mean, 40 films, that's a lot. I and, think like I heard even 49 total, maybe more. Wow, that's a lot. And this, we're talking about like the early 20th century. So this is a huge deal that she's being really prolific as a film composer. Yeah, and well, I... I I have some like inklings, some things I want to research up on mm -hmm. in relation to her music, but we'll talk a bit about that later. Um, now we get to, you know, the elephant in the room of a lot of composers during this time, the big world wars that happened. <laughs> like you can't get around those. Yeah. So as we mentioned, um, Typhair, you know, is from, she's a French composer. She's from France and World War II did find itself in France. So she, unfortunately, was forced to leave her country as well as abandoning a majority of her scores 
Uh, one of the only scores she brought with her was her, re- at the time, recently completed three etudes for piano and orchestra. Eventually, she found some passage on a boat that took her to the United States, and she ended up living in Philadelphia for the remainder of the war, so only a few hours away from us. But we were just in Philadelphia, yeah. We were, yeah, it was not a fun drive. But yeah, so it really was unfortunate that she had to leave her country and spend quite a few years displaced due to the war and yeah just a random side note three etudes for piano and orchestra a set of etudes for piano and orchestra that's interesting to me yeah i was actually trying to look for this piece um just on google to see if there's a recording or a score i unfortunately wasn't able to get any great leads or maybe the title wasn't because a lot of these titles are available in both french and english and maybe i I don't know, maybe my French is so bad I couldn't find <laughs> the the French title. I mean, that is worth noting. If you're looking for her work, some of them are French titles. Um, another thing is a lot of these pieces are still under copyright and going between different publishers. So the publishers have changed over the years and some of them are, you know, not as active or harder to find stuff like that, um, at, at least from what I could tell. Yeah. Uh, but if you're in an institution with like a really great library, stuff like that, then you're you're likely to find some of her music and biographies about her. Yeah, because there are actual whole biographies written about her. And we totally recommend checking them out if you have access to your local library, university library, whatever it may be. Um, and it's funny you start talking about publishers because after the war in 1946, she finally was able to return to France, and here she started composing a lot of orchestral and chamber music again, as well as getting back on the grind for film scores. And something important to note is a lot, if not all, of her music composed during this time was not published until after her death. And one of the pieces we'll be featuring today is one of those pieces that even though it was composed in the 40s, it wasn't published until almost the 21st century. Yeah, this is kind of a complicated time in her output. Mm-hmm. So she's not just completely inactive during this time. She's, she's still composing and stuff. A lot of the pieces are, you know, a little lost to time. And she was still successful. Like she gave successful concert tours um, in the 50s with the baritone Bernard Lefort um, or Lefort. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that somewhere right, <laughs> but um, for a concerto. So that was a 1954 concerto and she was also experimenting with, um, it says serial techniques. So I want to dig into that a bit, but in a clarinet sonata that was made in 1957. So still experimenting, still trying new things, still composing. But a lot of it was not published until after her death in 1983. All that said, if you do want to do a deep dive, you should really check out her memoirs if you can find those. She gives anecdotes, some of the stuff that we've talked about, like her personal history and stuff. You'll find more info on that. And I'd go as far to say a lot of the pieces that we mentioned in little tidbits here have so much story behind them, like mm-hmm. how, how she met Eric Satie, what impact that had. Um, how certain pieces were composed and what she was doing, uh, her relationships. If you want info on Mm -hmm. that, we encourage you to go and and dive into that. Um, She also has some really interesting collaborations that she's done in her life with with Diaghilev, other members of Les Six, um, and just a lot of other interesting figures that are really awesome that you should check out. Yeah, I mean, being in France, being a French composer... I mean, if your name's out there, you're probably, I guess you'll run into Diaghilev. Um, You know, a lot was going on during the time. We'll share some of the the resources that we use to learn more about her. And we actually encourage you to do so as well. Don't take our word for it. Definitely. (laughs) I know it's a meme to say this, but do your own research. Um, It definitely helps if you can make your own contribution to researching these composers and getting their pieces out there. And speaking of which, we'll be discussing the music right now. (laughs) Heck yeah, let's dive into it. So the first one we have is a piano trio. You say this is an early work. And to an extent, during this later part of her life, she was revising some of her older works. Yeah. um, Going back and completing them or just straight up revising them. 
So this was composed in 1917, but had a revision in 1978. And just to put that into perspective, she was in her 20s in 1917, and in 1978, she was in her 80s. So imagine you write a piece or make any piece of art when you're, tw- when you're 25 years old, and then 60 years later, if I'm doing my math correctly, I'm so sorry to my first grade math teacher, um, the, you're... Yeah, you end up being 80 years old and you look at this thing you made when you were 25 and you're like, huh, I'm going to finally finish that piece that I completely abandoned. Um, That's basically what this piano trio is. And it's it's really interesting because um, what ended up happening is towards the end of her life, she was still composing, she was still teaching, she had a very active career, but she started to rely more on self-borrowed systems and familiar composition techniques that she used in her other works, which is totally fine, you know, as you get, you know, as you spend more time doing something, you get more comfortable with certain techniques, you know. To- Establish a style, develop a system for it. Yeah, like I mean, you try things out, you see what you like, you see what you don't like. And she, at this time, you know, Typhair knew what she liked and stuck with it. And, uh, I mean, if you're having... I don't know if this ties quite into this piece because it's so early, but like financial troubles can encourage you to to borrow from some of early works or to depend on, you know, familiar process. Yeah, definitely that. Or maybe it might have been a thing where it's like, hey, after so many years, um, I never got to complete this piece because at the time it may not have been a good time. And she finally sat down and said, hey, I can finally work on this. So it's really interesting, though, because a lot of her output was coming into a a full circle like this, where she started using callbacks of techniques and styles that were used in her earlier works. And pieces like this piano trio shows a vast range of output demonstrated across her entire career with both her neoclassical and impressionist influences and styles. And they're presented very clearly in this piece, I think, um, given that it was started in 1917, but not finished until. 78. Yeah, this is one that we think a lot of listeners will enjoy. It covers a lot of ground, like the neoclassical and impressionist are probably like the two buzzwords. <laughs> Can yeah. we call them buzzwords? The two probably. things you, you'll probably latch on to stylistically. It's incredibly melodic, so it's very um, different than, say, like um, uh, Ustoskaya, who we talked about. Um, so there's a lot to um, enjoy in this piece for even the most casual listener, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Now, that being said, um, now you get our reactions, our just opinions. um, So not so academic. And it's probably not super academic to say this, but (laughs) when I heard this, it reminded me of like Studio Ghibli vibes or like Joe Hisaishi. Um, So I heard this and I was like, wow, um, I mean, maybe because so so much of the music is inspired by impressionist composers and stuff like that. Maybe that's why it has such a sound to us now, but that's a, it's an interesting perspective listening to it in the 21st century. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I was listening to this piece for the first time, I also couldn't help but think a little bit of Spirited Away. Um, among other things, I mean, this piece just on its own is really interesting, really, really wonderful to listen to. It's a delight to listen to, and I totally recommend sitting down listening to it. If you think of... Studio Ghibli films, that's great. If you don't, that's totally great too. (laughs) Yeah, if you're an anime fan, this is for you maybe. But (laughs) all that said, I think what's also really amazing about this is even at a young age, I mean, she's she's basically our age at the time of writing this. And it's super like tight pacing for a lot of this stuff, like really great shifts in, in, I guess what you'd say, color and Mm -hmm. timbre. like cool modal interchange stuff happening. So you get this tapestry of timbre and I guess you'd say like tone colors is, I mean, Mm -hmm. I know people use that to describe timbre, but I think the shifts in harmony and everything is what will really capture you here. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting because when I listen to this also, I, I can't help but wonder how much of that is from when she first sat down with this piece in her 20s and how much of it came to her maybe more in her 80s when she revised and finished this because it's really interesting because this is a piece where you can hear both her early compositional styles and her later ones sprinkled in there as well. So it's really, really a cool piece. You don't see a, a ton of pieces that are written at the far extremes of a composer's long career. 
yeah, going back and revising a piece that's that old is definitely rare. But I mean, maybe there is a balance to be found. So if you're doing a theory analysis or something, hey, maybe we gave you a paper idea. I don't know. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Though some things you might really be interested in on on that side of things is there's a lot of verticality to this music. Like, I guess maybe you could say that's like in a French style, but you have these massive chords, dense harmonies, you know? So if you're like into like, I don't know, like fusion harmony, jazz, things like that, this is music that you'll probably enjoy a good like gateway into more chamber music. Yeah. And it's not quite salon music or anything either. It's like, this seems like, you know, no, no, no offense to salon music, but this doesn't seem like that kind of, uh, uh, purpose. It's very, it seems like a significant chamber work. And I'd actually love to see this on more concert programs because, um, it's energetic and everything. And there's a lot of shifts, but it doesn't look super, super difficult. College students could play this. Professionals would have an easy time playing this. Yeah. To be fair, neither Joshua nor I are violinists, cellists, or pianists, but we, we, I don't know, we think it'd be, it'd be <laughs> easy to put together, at least for three skilled professionals. Well, I'm a flutist, so I mean, maybe the violin is close enough because <laughs> we play so many violin transcriptions, arrangements of violin works for flute. Um, this definitely reminds me of, you know, other pieces that are coming out around this time like other impressionist composers, definitely, and, and not all of them are impressionists or self-describe themselves as such, but mm -hmm. if you're a Debussy fan or a Ravel fan, listen to this. If you're a Satie fan, listen to this. Remind me of like um, Ernest Bloch, um, who did like some flute works that, that remind me of this. But yeah. the point being, I'm surprised this just isn't on programs as much. Yeah. Piano trios, this is a good one to check out. Um, now, I guess the other pieces present a, a contrast to this style. How about you tell us about the intermezzo, Han? Absolutely. So the next two pieces we're going to present on are actually both piano duos, so for two pianos. And this first one we're going to talk about was composed in 1946. It's a short three-minute piece called Intermezzo for two pianos. And this is actually one of the first pieces that she composed upon her return to France after World War II. It was written in celebration of the birth of one of her friend's twin sons. And it's really, it's a really interesting work because this is the piece we were kind of hinting at earlier that it's one of the pieces that you know, despite being written after the war, so shortly after the war, it wasn't published until after her death in 1983. Specifically, this piece was published in 1999, so right before the 21st century. And just some quick, I already did the math ahead of time. Um, that's over 15 years after her death and over 50, five zero years after the piece's completion. So think about that for a second. Yeah, another trend of... I guess these old works being published later on the like style of the piece, it is a bit of a contrast because I've, I've heard people describe her work as being like optimistic. And I think this really kind of drives that home. Mm -hmm. It's kind of playful, kind of optimistic. Um, and it's not so dark in, in the, um, in the other piece, the piano trio, there's some like sonorities that you get that are more clustery, some darker tones and stuff. And you get these these dissonances. This one is much more kind of like free flowing, lots of like interlocking stuff. Of course, it's two pianos. Yeah. Um, and it seems like a light kind of piece. Yeah. And a lot of people who listen to this have compared it to children simply because the dedication is actually to the two children who are born. <laughs> okay. So a lot of people like to make that connection. So I don't know if... Um, Ty Fair was going for that sort of um, visionary element there or not, but I think that's an interesting observation that a lot of people make once they see, oh, this is dedicated to two baby boys. And I also like to note that, generally speaking, after the war, a lot of composers' music got dark, like, yeah, or just explored completely different sounds, you know, like like a futurist aesthetic or, you know, like Verez using all these percussion instruments, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and that's not, a, that's not even like that. That's earlier than this. Yeah. Um, so 
Ty Fair is really holding on to, you know, kind of a matured version of this impressionist neoclassical aesthetic, still going strong with it in the mid um, 20th century. Yeah. Um, so that's something worth noting, though we did mention she ends up experimenting with like serial techniques and stuff towards the later part of her life. But I don't know if you're if you're in the know, serial doesn't necessarily mean it has to be <laughs> depressing music or something. Yeah, we're not talking about Captain Crunch here. Oh, wow. Okay, that's how we describe sharp dissonances now, Captain Crunch. Oh, my favorite kind of cereal is the cookie cookie crisp, though. That's the best one. Well, we could talk about our top three cereals on the on a special edition episode, but yes. um, I think a comparison people like to make is like Ravel or Debussy, but I think what, when I hear this one by Ty Fair, it's a lot more, I guess, like reserved is what I'd say. This one in comparison to her older work is less focused on like these big vertical sonorities and it's a bit more like tame in how it deals with all the, the kind of impressionist harmony stuff. Um, so maybe because it's a three-minute piece or it's two pianos, but if you listen to the older works, you might be expecting something way more over the top in regard to like harmony and counterpoint and stuff. But this one definitely seems like a lot more controlled, I guess. Yeah, I totally agree. And if you like this piece so much, then you might like to know that two years later, in 1948, she actually modified, or I'm sorry, included a modified version of this piece in her ballet, Paris Mag Maggi. Or maybe it's Paris, right? Oh. <laughs> Paris Maggi. I don't Paris know. Maggi? Okay. That's for you listeners to tell us <laughs> Yes. when you give us some feedback on our pronunciation. All that said, let's go into the final one. This is another two pianos, so it can be a point of direct comparison. Now, that being said, I know this is the last one we're covering, but there's plenty of interesting things to check out otherwise. I mean, even the early, early, like, um, piano works and ballets and stuff, some of them have, like, bitonality and really cool... Um, sonorities as we talked about. So yeah. um, that's that's even the early, the mid stuff and the later stuff is are pieces that people are largely haven't checked out yet. So. Not to mention her film works. I mean, we unfortunately haven't covered any of those today, but we totally recommend going, checking out the list of pieces she written, the, the list of uh, film scores she's done. She's actually also done some micro operas for radio, which is really, really cool to see in the 20th century. Um, so totally go and check those out just because we didn't put them on this episode doesn't mean they're not great pieces. I mean, it was actually this episode, I would argue is one of the hardest ones when it came to deciding, okay, what three pieces should we show today? Yeah. And to detract a little bit, I guess we should probably talk about like the film score to stuff too, a little bit. Um, but to detract a little bit pieces for radio and stuff is kind of cool already because that's something that happens now, like people doing the, just the studio recording mm -hmm. and then pushing that afterwards. So I thought it was cool that you see sort of this interplay of, oh, the radio now exists. Let's get music on the radio. Yeah. And it's also a great medium because there are so many different types of music going on the radio. Um, you know, you may think of folks like Delia Derbyshire, who's out here making electronic pieces, but then you also have composers like Germaine Taifer, who's doing like short mini operas, um, basically chamber works that could be and have been reproduced live. So I think that's just really cool to see. Yeah. So check those out. And then on the film side, I don't know, maybe this is like a film history thing someone could tell us, but when I hear, hear music like this, it's so hard not to hear them like so influential on the pieces of today in film music, you know, so many young composers and folk composers love Joe Hisaishi, but also those composers were learning from the 20th century composers, the early and mid 20th century composers. So they were learning from Stravinsky and perhaps they were learning from Germaine Taifer and picking up this sort of aesthetic from people like her and Ravel WC from Eric Satie and stuff. That's definitely something that happened. So if you go through and watch her films, which maybe we should definitely do is like, mm -hmm. see if we can trace this path of like her influence on film music, perhaps. Yeah. If you're ever in a mood to watch some old movies from the thirties, forties, and a little bit later than that, then totally go and 
check out some of her films. Yeah, don't don't sleep on film music. It has <laughs> a lot of depth to it, and a, it has an interesting history for sure. Um, and she was in the United States for a bit, so I wonder how that really, like, if that changed up her film career a lot because, you know, Hollywood, maybe things were going back then. Yeah, I wonder how much maybe she traveled within the U.S. while she was there because she primarily settled in Philly, so I don't know. Yeah. It's a little early to think like, oh, this is like the big Hollywood stuff. But I mean, 50s, 60s, stuff like that. It's not too soon to... Well, no, it was kind of the rise of early Hollywood films in the U.S. at the time, I think. I don't know. Well, no, yeah, no, not in Philly. She'd have to trek across the mainland U.S. (laughs) The foothills. (laughs) Yes, the foothills, the Great West, all that good good geography. If you've ever had a road trip, you know. (laughs) Now that said, let's talk about Sonata for Two Pianos. Now we jump ahead, um, almost another like uh, almost thirty years again. Um, we're at Sonata for Two Pianos, nineteen seventy four. Yes, and Ty Fair, she lives. She lived quite a long life. She lived up until the age of ninety one. So I think it's really great that we have these pieces that span across her whole very long career because you know she started composing very early in her life and didn't stop composing until literally a couple weeks before her death. So this sonata is a really, really cool one. It was composed in 1974, and it was written for an American piano duo called Gold and Fisdale. But unfortunately, it was likely never performed by the duo, and this is due to um, a retirement that one of the pianists, Arthur Gold, had to go through because he started having issues and health problems with his hands that caused him to have to stop regularly performing as a professional pianist. Yep, and this basically happened near the time of the premiere, so it kind of halted that. But um, these are pieces for two pianos. I think it'd be great to see some people, you know, put them on a concert. (laughs) Yes, piano duos are really awesome, and we love seeing them. Yes, and we'll talk a little bit about what else is out there, but... This is in three movements. Each one is is quite a bit different, especially the last one is really, really different from the other two. Um, but I'll say this still has like that um, that optimistic vibe. It sounds very light. Like this definitely reminds me of like modern day sort of film music that you'd see in like a romance, like a rom-com or something. Or, yeah. And even the first movement sounds more like a throwback, like older, like older jazz-inspired film scores. Now, this isn't quite, you know, jazzy, as you would say. It's not super dense harmonies or anything like that, but it has that sort of, like, light accessibility that you might see from, like, a jazz orchestra or something in the 30s um, or the 50s or something. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting how each movement is quite different from each other. I mean, the first one... Um, I read that it's described as like a Toccata-like Allegro, which I think is an interesting and accurate um, label for it. And the second movement is slower, but it actually uses a theme inspired by the Pavant in her 1929 ballet, La Nouvelle Cithir. And you can definitely hear like it's melodic and there's some theme to it. And that's yeah. that's sort of like the the interesting part of it. I think this is great music to like, you know, listen and relax to because of how evenly paced it is, how focused it is on, you know, conveying those those ideas. Now, the last movement kind of surprises you. It's brisk. It has like a bit more complexity as far as like the harmonies go. So it's, it kind of jumps out at you like yeah. oh, more dissonance, you know, kind of picks things up right off the gate. Um, yeah, it uses some polytonality in there, some bitonality, and it has quite an abrupt ending that leaves you wanting more, quite frankly. Yeah, a little bit of of spice in there. But that's not to say that it's a complete departure from her style. It still has this playful element that's kind of like, you know, carefree. So if if you're into, you know, something that's not too heavy, but still has that sort of like that complexity that you might hear in Impressionist music, this is something you'd really like. Um, And definitely, if you're a fan of like, film music today, you're going to like this. It's going to remind you of, you know, some of your favorite composers, most likely. Yeah, or maybe some of your favorite films or TV shows as well. Yeah, I mean, this is the source to an extent. 
as far as the other pieces out there, there's a lot of like um, smaller ones like, you know, piano and voice. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also violin sonatas that we mentioned, a clarinet sonata that's later. So there's some smaller chamber works that not only should you check out, but maybe think of performing yourself if you have that instrument or <laughs> if you can, I don't know, legally do an arrangement. Oh, yeah, definitely. Or, you know, just do it for fun and put it on MuseCore. <laughs> yeah, at the very least, give it a listen, share with your friends, stuff like that. But it's definitely something that I think people should be checking out. Um, this is, is to an extent when people are lost to time and making music that is less accessible. It's, you know, there's a, a, a inkling of people who think, oh, maybe they're lost to time because their music's bad or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people like to not enjoy, like, I guess, like hate on some of the more like dissonant music or, you know, what have you. We're not here for an aesthetic discussion. Yeah. But I will say that this seems like, you know, music that would be at home in any sort of chamber recital that you'd hear today. And that's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with it, but it does it does strike me because this is something that could definitely be popular to a lot of just casual listeners. Yeah, and I think it's a real shame that her music wasn't more popular, especially in the mid to later parts of her career. I mean, her music was, you know, she was getting a lot of exposure, a lot of popularity in her early career in the 20s. But after that, it kind of um, dipped down and her success didn't really... I mean, she was still successful, but her popularity, I guess, didn't maintain as well as it did with the other five male members of Lasix. Yeah, and I guess on that note, it would have been really interesting to see you know, what if she linked up with the people in New York or something, you know, like Mm -hmm. what would she have done with a minimalist aesthetic, you know? Yeah. Um, Because to an extent, some of her music, I feel like could be adapted to those newer styles. Absolutely. Now this is, we're talking about a French composer. So I'm saying like, oh, what if they ended up in the U.S. and connected with, you know, people like, you know, all the way from John Cage to Steve Reich. Um, so that could have been a whole nother element to it, but yeah, maybe wondering what happened if instead of returning to France after the war, if she stayed in the U S a little bit longer or maybe returned after going back to France and living the rest of her life there. Yeah. That's not to say she wasn't successful, right? but we are saying that her music is underrepresented in this time. And definitely if you're going to a lot of like chamber concerts and stuff, you won't see her on a lot of programs. Um, And you can actually say a lot of other big name composers too who are still sort of lost to time. Um, I mean, we considered doing this episode on like Lily Boulanger and that's a respected name, you know? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who love her music and stuff, but if you look at her large ensemble popularity compared to like the smaller chamber works, there's a lot of people who are just, you know, kind of sleeping on, on even respected composers, successful composers' works. Yes, and I mean, it's just so bizarre to me because, you know, unlike Typhair, you know, Lily Boulanger did not live a very long life. Um, She lived up until she was in her early 20s, if my memory is correct. And But she still had a very, very impressive output for someone of her age and time. Yeah, I mean, this is someone who's respected, so is Nadia Boulanger, and... These are people who, in a lot of respects, should be in the forefront, you know, yes. should be on more programs, stuff like that. So if you have the chance, check out the music. Yes. At least give it a listen. Yes. <laughs> listen to Germaine Taifair. We're not doing an episode on her and her music for no reason. It's awesome. It's mm-hmm. awesome music. Awesome career. Y'all need to check out her stuff. Yes. And we want to give a little shout out to the Boulanger Initiative, um, who's posting a lot about women composers that people should check out in a very diverse backgrounds and outputs. Yes, and if anyone isn't aware, it is presently Women's History Month, so yay women, yay women composers, um, not just now who are alive, but, you know, those who came before all modern women composers. Yes, so special thanks to, you know, Boulanger Initiative and anyone else who's putting the word out on composers whose 
music is underrepresented. And performers as well. Yes. I mean, anyone, even just listeners, you know. So it's important to note that if someone's lost the time, they might be lost to us too, you know. Unfortunately, yeah. So feel free to comment, you know, reach out, let us know who we should check out and who we should do episodes on, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll always be a great help and... There's just so much that even, you know, we haven't listened to. Yes, and we would absolutely love to listen to, you know, what y'all think that we would enjoy. We always appreciate finding new works by new artists. Yes, speaking of which, if you want to see a lot of new works by composers that you might not know of and who are alive today, come to Campground 22. And if you do, you'll see us there. Yes, it's going to be a real fun time. We're going to be having a fun time back in our stomping grounds in Tampa Bay, Florida. So please come (laughs) and join us. It's going to be so much fun. It's going to be a real fun time. Yes, just to recap, March 24th is when this thing starts and it goes till March 26th. So on March 24th is the first concert at the Morian Center for Clay in St. Petersburg, Florida. And that's at 7.30 p.m. On the 25th, there's another 7.30 p.m. concert at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Tampa, Florida. And then, of course, there's one on the 26th, but now at 2 p.m. <laughs> Don't yes. forget that. If you show up too late, you won't see anyone there. But that's at the Florida Museum of Photographic Arts, which we've been to, and that place is amazing. So great music and great artwork. It's there. Yeah. It's going to be a real fun time. Tickets are only $10 for students and seniors. And if you're not a student or a senior, it's still only 15 Yes. So we hope to see you there. It's great to see this happening in the Tampa area. And this is the inaugural festival. So we're really excited to see this thing kick off. Yes, it's going to be so much fun. And we look forward to seeing any of our viewers there. Yes. See you there. This is us signing off. Yes. Have a great week, y'all. And enjoy Campground 22.